Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Renlisbacher, the founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. Today we get to talk about a wonderful woman named Anna Mary Moses. I'm excited to tell you her story because she was a mom and very late in life discovered gifts in herself that really blessed the world. So it's really quite a cool story. I do want to quickly mention that our Mothers of Vision MDM celebration for 2020 has sold out the first session on September 12th. So that's pretty great news. We've added another session on September 26th and open registration for that day. So we would love to still see you there online. We have uh, a little bit of the content that we're going to share out. If you haven't joined our email list, please do that. So you can we can send you these emails and give you a little taste of the kind of thing that we're going to be going over. For those that sign up for the Mothers of Vision event, we will be mailing you the principles list, your branded journal with the logo on front, your action plan card with all the blanks that you get to fill in throughout the day. And it looks as though we'll probably be sending you the vision walk early so that you can spend some time going through it and join us that day with a vision in hand, ready to learn how to make it a reality. So it's really going to be so exciting. It, we've been able to bring the cost down significantly because it's gone online. It's under $50. You can add the recordings on for just 20. They're normally 40, but you'll have those recordings for a lifetime if you purchase them with the event for just $20. And then we've been able to bring the two months of mentoring down as well. When you sign up for the mentoring, you'll get a separate branded journal to be used throughout the following two months. We will meet every other week live. You'll have ongoing unlimited access to me via email. We will be having uh, daily journaling questions that will empower you with some other activities. I'll have some other videos, book selections, and resources to just keep you uplifted throughout those two months and answer your questions as they come up as you strive to implement your vision. So if that sounds good to you, we'd love to see you in the mentoring as well. All right, let's dive into the story of Anna Mary Moses. She was born in 1860 in New York State. This is what she said of her childhood. Here I spent the first 12 years of my life with mother, father, and sisters and brothers. Those were my happy days, free from care or worry, helping mother, rocking sister's cradle, taking sewing lessons from mother, sporting with my brothers, making rafts to float over the mill pond, roaming the wild woods, gathering flowers, and building air castles. I was one of a family of 10. So she remembers it as a very happy time. 
but it was also a time of lots of work. She was the oldest daughter. I think she was number two or three in the family. And of course, boys and girls and men and women had more distinct roles to play at that time. And she was taught in all the responsibilities of caring for a family, taking care of children, taking care of the home. Her mother wanted to prepare her well for adulthood, which started a whole lot earlier at that time than it does now. Some of the duties, she talks often about rocking the cradle. So she says there was always a baby in the house. From the time that she was little, if the baby cried, it was her job to go in and literally rock the cradle, push the cradle back and forth like we have swings today to get help the baby get back to sleep. She cared for the younger children a lot. She helped make soap, cooked, cleaned, sewed all the time, was taught to sew, and did the weaving and the spinning. She talked about a few fun things that she liked to do when she was a child. This one I thought was really fascinating. They had these little gray birds that must have been quite small and hopped along the ground. And when they would go on walks in the woods, these little birds would be scattered on the ground in front of her. And she loved to play a game where she would run and catch them and try to fold them into her skirt. And she was able to catch them quite often and put them in her skirt and then they would scoot out or fly out and she could never keep them uh, very many in her skirt at a time. But I just thought that was so adorable. One of her favorite pastimes, if she did have much time, was to make and play with her paper dolls. She talks about, you know, using uh, mulberries and uh, other natural things from nature to stain the paper in order to have color and that's how she would decorate these dolls and she would cut them out if she ever got her hands on any paper she just felt rich and she was able to make these dolls and make little clothes for them and decorate them and play with them she also would take any broken dishes that were no longer wanted in the house and she built this little house for herself out in the woods and she and her friend each had their own little neighboring houses and they would go back and forth and you know, feed each other meals and visit the neighbor and all that kind of stuff. Super, super cute. Another really interesting thing from her childhood was when she was seven years old, she was called in to the house and her mother sat her down and she said, Anna Mary, did you know that there's a thing called birthdays? And she said, no, she'd never heard of such a thing before. What did it mean? And her mother said, well, a birthday is the day that you were born and it celebrates how many years you've been alive and today is your seventh birthday. And that was how she came to know that there was such a thing as birthdays. They weren't celebrated then. Later in life, she lived to be 101 and they did an interview with her when she was 92 and she talked about people sending her birthday cake. She was quite famous by then. And so it came to be more celebrated, but her family was just you know, it, it's interesting because we will say poor because they didn't have the conveniences that we have now, but they always talk about having everything that they needed. I, I can't remember anything about the specifics of the stat, but I, I heard a study recently that was done where they had taken people from, mm, it might have been 40 or 50 years ago now, and they asked them 
how many things were necessary for them and how many things they wanted. And then they took people today and asked the same question. And it was incredibly disproportionate. So uh, 50 years ago, there were, all, there were like less than 10 things people felt that they needed and only another eight or 10 things that they even wanted. And today there were like 25 or more things they felt they needed and then a whole lot longer list of things that they wanted. So it's amazing how happy you can be with less and how much you don't need that you think you need. Anyway, she had a simple life and we might say that she was poor in the sense that their family didn't have a lot of money, but they always had, they had a good size home and, and land and a farm and, and they were comfortable. They never wanted for things, you know, to, what to eat or clothing or things like that. And so she never felt poor. They would do the sugaring off where you get the maple from the syrup from the maple trees. It was just a, the kids loved it. Her parents would send them out there to the trees to move the buckets and carry it home and keep the fire stoked to keep things warm and keep the syrup moving. So those were her childhood years and they didn't last long. She did learn to read, but as, as far as I can see, she never formally went to school. She was taught some at home, but mostly she was kept busy working, learning skills that she would need and then had some free time to play and explore, which she loved. When she was 12 years old, she was all grown up. It was time to leave home and go out on her own. And, you know, even just, I, I did a mission-driven story on Calvin Coolidge a couple months ago. And when he was, I think, 13, he left home to go off to boarding school. I mean, this was not, even 100 years ago, not uncommon at all for children to be considered adults and to leave home and be expected to engage in the adult world. So when she was 12, she left home. Her parents didn't kick her out or anything like that, but it was just time. That was just what was done. And so she went um, a few towns away to care for an older couple full time and to earn her living, to take care of herself and, and to take care of them. And so she had to have all the skills that, you know, she didn't have to earn money and manage money in the same way, although over time she had to learn those skills as well because from the time that she was 12, she was completely on her own. And this, of course, was not unusual at all. So they always kept her sewing. She did the sewing for them and the sewing for herself. So if she didn't have anything to do, she was usually sewing. But she cooked three meals a day. She tended their large flower garden by weeding and hoeing it. She did the washing, the ironing, the butter churning. She made all the food from scratch, just like they did in those times. I mean, there might have been a few boughten things, but she even made the butter from scratch and that kind of thing. And it's interesting how she talks about this time in her life because we just see the world through our modern lens and we just think that this is so normal to us. And we feel so privileged with all of our technologies and <laughs> newfangled gadgets that we lose sight of the fact that there are certain natural laws at play, certain principles. And I'm just like you. I mean, these things are a good reminder for me. I was going back through this book and writing these notes and I was thinking, I'm going home and requiring more of my kids. I'm not requiring enough of them because it's such a good reminder that they can do so much more. 
she had so many responsibilities. And in today's world, you would think, oh, there were such awful parents. And it must have been such an awful, you know, dreary time for her. And she was an active girl. Like, she was kind of a tomboy. She was a little bit sassy. And you can even tell that in interviews from later on. Um, And she didn't like to sew. She didn't like some of the tasks that were handed to women. But because she was accomplished, because she had mastered these skills, this is what she said about this time. I was proud in those days. I could get up such fine dinners for Mr. Whiteside's friends who came from far off to see him. When the minister came and I could bring out the fine linen and the china tea set and the heavy silver, then with hot biscuits, homemade butter and honey, with home cured dried beef, I was proud. Isn't that fascinating? It totally nurtured her self-image. She was full of confidence. She could do things well. She had paid a price to become good at them. And it gave her this sense of importance and a place in the adult world at a young age where she was actually contributing in a real concrete way. And she was respected and she waited on others and it's just it's just such a good reminder to us today that we can do more and our children can do more there's a couple other stories from her book that i'm actually going to share in the mission driven teen program because i really want to impress upon the youth their first video that we're adding to that program is on character because i want them to understand what character means and how they are responsible for their own character. It is not something that's talked about a lot in today's world. It's a very entitled generation that's growing up and they they really want to be caretaken. And so we need strong youth and young adults that can stand up to the barrage of the world and that can be listen to their own consciences and do what they know to be right and know how to nurture their, their self-image, know how to feel better about themselves, know how to be proud of who they are and what they're doing, no matter their age. When she was living with this family, the Whitesides, they were very good to her. They treated her like a ch- like their child and, and were very respectful and kind to her. So it was a great place for her to be. But she was expected to act like an adult and to care for them in their home. The... Um, the wife told her that she would give Anna Mary a silver thimble if she read the Bible all the way through. And she'd never done this. And she said it was difficult. There were a lot of words that she didn't know. She'd still never been to school and she didn't understand a lot of what she read, but she made her way through it and she earned her silver thimble and she was always proud that she did it. So she just keeps doing these things. She just keeps having these challenges placed in front of her And she rises to the occasion and just feels great about herself. At age 14, she went to work at a boarding school. And she worked to pay for her room and board so that she could go to school and get, uh, oh, I think she probably had two or three years of formal education. And of course, it wasn't the learning to read and things like that. It was pretty intense and rigorous, much more difficult than it is today. She talks about how the kind of education her parents had, that her mother was very good at math and she could do her sums. She mentions a couple times, you know, women didn't get a lot of education in those days, but 
And it did become more and more the case that they, that more time was given to them to attend school, and then later on, more and more of them went on to college. But they weren't. They were always literate, and they were always versed in principles of liberty, so that they could perpetuate that. And I'll talk more about um, how she felt about womanhood and and the role of women in society in just a minute. But. She did get some schooling. They only did three months in the summer and three months in the winter of school. So they only went to school half the year. Any kids that did go to school, in the other half of the year, they were home working hard. And it's interesting to me to think, you know, we seem today to feel like more seat time in the classroom means more education. But the kind of things that she was learning to do, the real life experiences that she was having, and the skills that she was gaining were a part of her education and very, very, very valuable to her throughout her life. So I'm going to read you this story. So for two years, she's at this boarding school, and she had an interesting experience that she tells in her autobiography. So one day, the, the woman that she worked for came to her and said, you can go see your family for a couple days if you'd like to. You can take the train. Well, she knew the train wasn't leaving till later, and so she decided she was going to walk home. And It was like three or four or five miles, something like that. And she got there just as it was getting dark, <laughs> and she, knocked, she, she walked in, and her dad said, you can't come in. You're going to have to walk the three miles to your aunt's house because everybody's just gone to bed with the measles. I'm taking care of everyone. And her mom had them and said, no, you'd better have her come in and help you take care of us, which of course meant that she was going to get the measles and be sick herself. But she came home to help take care of her family. She didn't go back to school for a little while. And so this is what she said about an experience that she had there when she was helping take care of her family. Brother Fred was a baby then, about three months old, and he was hungry and cried and kept crying. He wouldn't stop. Mother was quite sick with the measles. Father told me he was hungry, so I went to the pantry and fixed him a coffee cup full of bread and milk, and I used a good deal of the top milk with sugar on it. I set it on the edge of the stove to get it warm, then took him and wrapped a cloth under his chin and commenced feeding him that bread and milk. I fed all of it to him, and he went off to sleep. He had never had anything but the breast milk up to that time. He slept all night and went way into the next morning. About nine o'clock I got worried and looked at him and he seemed to be sleeping good. I began to realize that I should not have fed him bread and milk and I didn't know but maybe I had killed him. When father came in about 11 o'clock I asked him to look at the baby which he did and he said he's all right. I didn't dare tell him what I'd done. He was still sleeping at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So the baby's been asleep for almost 24 hours. And mother said, I wish you would bring me the baby. He had not to sleep like this. I went to the cradle and picked him up, but I didn't dare uncover his face. I put him down on the bed beside mother, and she lifted the netting off his face and I didn't dare to look for I feared he was dead. Can you imagine? She's about 15 at this time. As she lifted the veil from his face, she said, Oh my goodness! And then I knew he was gone. I turned to look, and his face was as red as red could be. 
He was all broke out in measles. Fred lives to be an old man. He is in his 70s now. Oh, can you imagine? Oh, that would, I read that. I just couldn't believe it. It would be, oh, so hard. Anyway, those were the kinds of experiences they had. She had the measles. She got better. And then she went to work for another family. And while she was there, she was the hired hand for kind of indoors, and they had a hired hand named Thomas Moses, who was the hired hand for inside, uh, for outside. And he was a young man, a little bit older than her. And they were just first friends, and then they became more than friends. She said, he found me a good cook, and I found him of good family, very temperate and thrifty. In those days, we didn't look for a man with money, but for a good family, good reputation, because many of the boys were chicken thieves. So if they didn't have the character to earn their own way, to make money for themselves and feed themselves honestly, then the girls didn't want to marry them. They cared about character. She said, Thomas just loved to work. He was handy and could do almost anything. He was a wonderful man, much better than I am. He was a Christian, always trying to do good to fellow men. So she, they fell in love with each other. And the, the marriage was just down at the you know, city hall. It was very simple. And he wanted to move south. He had decided that as soon as he got married, he wanted to go where it was warm. And so they went down into the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. And they found a farm there and set up house and they let they lived there the first 20 years that they were married all this time she of course has been striving i mean she doesn't she's not trying to live the laws of life mission but of course she is doing the best she can in her circumstances she goes to church every week uh, she said later on that she was an avid bible reader all her life and i'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute she was striving to be the best mother and wife she knew how to be. I'll give you a couple examples of how she tempered her um, anger. And, you know, she said Thomas promised her when they married that he would never leave her side. And he was very loyal to her, and she really strove to be loyal to him. She had her children at home, and she hired a nurse who would come in she would pay her ten dollars and she would take care of the house for two weeks for her while she got better and got up and back on her feet i think she had she must have borne all her children while she lived in virginia i think she had actually gave birth to ten children had ten pregnancies but only five of them lived one of them died right after it was born, and she had four stillbirths. So, you know, so hard. I mean, life was just harder than, more physically demanding for sure. But she was a very loving mother and a very fun mom. I'll tell you this experience uh, she shared. One day at the dinner table, after Thomas had gone out, someone threw water and then someone else. In fact, she was the kind of mom that always had her door open. She says it was always extra food and anybody was always welcome. And so as her kids got older, their friends would often come over and she was kind of the fun house where the youth wanted to be and where they felt welcome. 
So someone threw water and then someone else. Then the battle was on. Some were running out of doors, out to the pump, and commenced to throw it by the bucketful. Some ran upstairs for protection, and they threw water out of the window, nearly drowning the ones under the window. The battle grew hotter, and they threw the water into the window till it ran down the back stairs into the dining room. One of the sisters said she would not stand for it if she was me. One of her sisters said, I wouldn't stand for this if I was you. I told her to let them have fun while they were young and could. It would be something to laugh about when they were old, and now they do. It was a rollicksome, happy house, and their father would join in with them. He was really one of them. So that gives you a good idea of the kind of home that she strove to create and the kind of family that she was raising. She was definitely had her faults, had her weaknesses, was not perfect by any means, but really tried to live what the Bible taught her and tried to be a faithful mother and wife. I don't think I ever lost my temper, she said, and got real wild like some folks, even when I was young. When I get angry, now listen to this, this is so adorable, how she learned self-management. Um, and those principles of self-care, she did always take good care of herself, and I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. This is a good example of the self-management that she practiced and then the self-discovery with, you know, she became good at many things, but especially her art. So she says, when I get angry, I just keep quiet and I think, ishkabibble. What the meaning of ishkabibble is, I don't know. But it's quite a byword, something like, the devil take you. <laughs> Can you imagine her getting mad at one of her kids and saying under her breath, ishkabibble? If you lose your temper, you do something and say something which you wouldn't if you waited a few minutes. But a flash of temper is sometimes better than to brood over things and feel vengeful. That kind of prize on your mind when you get like that. So she learned that she needed to bite her tongue so she wouldn't say things that you can't take back and that could hurt people. She also learned that you shouldn't hang on to resentments because they can eat away and canker your soul. She also said, I never really scolded my children. They were pretty good, mine, always. And I, she says that several times. Her paradigm about her children, her, the underlying beliefs that she carried about her family were that they were just good. Her husband was a good man. Her children would, were good people. They were going to obey her. It was going to be a hope, happy home. Like that was just the paradigm that she carried throughout the day. And she responded and behaved that way and was able to raise a pretty happy family. So then she kind of describes their life. After 20 years, um, let me see. I've got a couple stories here. Oh, I'll tell you that when I talk about the women's role. She... Uh, when she talks about kind of her role in the family. But later on, after 20 years, they ended up moving back to New York to be near family. I'm not sure what all the reasons were, but they were glad for the change. And she, her children went to the schools that she went to, and she lived there until she died. But here's how she kind of described their lives when they were raising their children. Time passed on. On a farm, the days are nearly all the same. Nothing changes but the seasons. In the early morning before the sun was up, I would dress and build the fire and put on the tea kettle for hot water, go out to the hen house, feed and water the chickens, come in and get breakfast, calling all hands to the table. By this time, the men had finished the milking and the horses have been curried and fed, ready for work. 
Coffee and hotcakes are all ready. Now we have breakfast. Then for five or six long hours in the field and in the house. Then a good dinner and back to work again till sundown. Then the supper and the milking. And then there was a reading of chapter, uh, chap- reading of a chapter in the Bible and a prayer. Then to bed till another day. These are some anecdotes kind of about herself during this time, her self-reliance and just kind of the way that she thought about herself and she thought about womanhood. If I didn't start painting, I would have raised chickens. I could still do it now. I would never sit back in a rocking chair waiting for someone to help me. I've often said before I would call for help from outsiders, I would rent a room in the city someplace and give pancake suppers, just pancake and syrup and they could have water like a little breakfast. I never dreamed that the pictures would bring in so much and as for all that publicity and as for the fame which came to grandma so late, that I am too old to care for now. So she, of course, as you may have guessed, became Grandma Moses, the great artist that's in the greatest museums in the world, Museum of Modern Art, some European museums, and her paintings now sell for over a million dollars a piece. But she was a simple woman who loved her family and loved God and tried to do right by everyone. So here's a few things that um, she said about herself and her role in her family and her life. I believed when we started out, she and Thomas, that we were a team and I had to do as much as my husband did, not like some girls, they sat down and then somebody has to throw sugar at them. I was always striving to do my share. She also said, I voted for the first time after Anna came went away from home. I think women should vote. They have to make a living just the same as the men do, so why should they not have a say-so? Some women are more capable of holding office than some men are. Since women commence to vote, they have more freedom. They don't have the drudgery they used to have, too. With education and voting, they have more to say on how the children should go to school. If they're going to have a this is interesting, though. She says if they're going to have a career, they should let the family business alone. They cannot fill both places. So she didn't have any problem with women having a career, but she felt if that's the life they chose, they shouldn't try to be a mother, too. Um... And this kind of goes back to when Phyllis, Anne told us Phyllis Schlafly's favorite saying was women could have it all, just not at the same time, and felt really strongly that when women were young, that when the children were young, women should really try to stay home with them, if at all possible. And that isn't possible in every case, of course, but that timing is important, you know. Um, being there when they're little, as much as you can, is really important. So she also tells this other interesting story uh, about when she tried to help earn money for the family she she thought you know I bet I could figure out a way to get all our groceries for free so she said she had the idea to make potato chips and she went to the grocer she bought potatoes she cut them all by hand she warmed up the lard she made the well, I don't know. I don't know where she'd first learned about potato chips, but she made them by hand and salted them, and she sold them back to the grocer. And there was more and more and more demand for them. People didn't want to take the time to make their own, and so the price kept going up, and there kept being bigger and bigger orders. She said, "My husband made a slicer. He didn't have much faith in it. He thought it would soon wear off. It was too laborious, but it increased till I had to make them by the barrel." and send them to White Sulphur Springs and over to Charlottesville besides keeping this man furnished with them. So she got to the point where this was a full-time gig and she was actually bringing in quite a bit of money to meet the demands of the orders. 
she didn't wasn't able to keep up with it and they moved away from there but that was the kind of thing she would just innovate and think of something that she could do created that little business she says that was the potato chip business I always wanted to be independent. I couldn't bear the thought of sitting down and Thomas handing out the money, just like climbing the house in my old days. I wanted to be the big toad. Just think it's incredible how much she loves to work, is willing to work, wants to take responsibility for herself and for her life, wants to do things, wants to create, and wants to make a contribution, doesn't want to just sit down and have people wait on her. And she said that several times in her autobiography. So as her family grew up, she had this experience where she had done so much sewing from the time she was a little girl, her hands were getting really arthritic. So she said, my hands were getting tired and lame. I could not handle a large needle anymore. It was chronic rheumatism. I used to wrap my hands up in scarves and lay them on a chair beside the bed. At night, I couldn't sleep on account of the aching, just like a toothache. Then one night I got desperate. So I got up and hunted the doctor book, the family advisor philosophy of diseases. The best recipe was this, three cups of sweet milk every day and from three to five drops of turpentine in it. I took it for about three months and all of a sudden there were no pain, pains anymore, but the hardness of the joint stayed. So I'm sure there are medical reasons why that was helpful. It was also her determination to find an answer, and she was very diligent and vigilant about this new way of healing herself, and she believed in it. And sure enough, she got the, the movement in her hands back, which was necessary to do the painting that she loved to do. So when she was little, her father, instead of spending money on candy, would spend money on paper. And he loved to draw, and he was, he was a bit of an artist himself, and so he would encourage the children to draw things. And that's where she started kind of learning to draw and liking to paint. And they would find things in nature again to color it and to make their own little paints. And one time, there wasn't any wallpaper or they couldn't afford it or something. And so her father asked her mother if she would like it if he just painted something on the walls. And she said, well, to go ahead and try. And it's amazing what they could accomplish because they would have like maybe one or two paintbrushes and they, especially in her early paintings later on, she didn't have a lot of access to nice paints and things. Like they were making some themselves. They were pulling colors from nature. But he made these beautiful scenes on the walls of their family room. And they loved it. And so she'd kind of seen that. So one day she said, I was papering the parlor. She's much older woman now. Her family is older. She would paint now and again. She would draw now and again. But she spent a lot of years just really busy trying to be a really great mom. I ran short of paper for the fireboard. So I took a piece of paper and pasted it over the board. So she didn't have any of the wallpaper. She just had a plain piece of paper. I painted it a solid color first. Then I painted two large trees on each side of it, like butternut trees. And back in it, I did a little scene of a lake and painted it a yellow color, really bright, as though you were looking off into the sunlight. In the front, to fill in that space, I brought in big bushes. I daubed it all on with the brush I painted the floor with. 
So, you know, again, not great tools. Dorothy's grandfather, when he saw it, made a great to-do. Oh, isn't that beautiful? That's the most wonderful thing I've ever seen. Don't let anything happen to that. That was my first large picture. Later she says, I started to paint in my old age, in my old age one might say, though I had painted a few pictures before. My sister Celestia came down one day and saw my worsted pictures and said, I think you could paint better and faster than you could do worsted pictures. So I did, and painted for pleasure to keep busy and to pass the time away, but I thought no more of it than doing fancy work. I always liked to paint, but only little pictures for Christmas gifts and things like that. Thomas had never talked about my painting. He thought it was a bit foolish. But one night, a few weeks before his death, he came in. It was after candlelight. And I want to just mention here, she said that for the last few months of his life, he made several comments. I mean, he was, I don't know, just in his mid-60s, and he wasn't in poor health at all. But it seems as though maybe he had some premonitions and he said a few things like about his funeral or going to heaven and being with her after life and not wanting to leave her so she didn't have someone to take care of her and things of this nature. And she kind of put those pieces together after he actually died. So she, they didn't know that he was like dying or whatever. He was in normal health. Everything was the same. The children were raised. They were in their 60s by now. And she had more time to paint. She just felt it was really relaxing and loved to do it. So he came in one night, just a few weeks before his death, and even though she'd painted in the past, I mean, I'm sure he thought it was beautiful, but he just didn't understand it. He came in and he asked, who did that painting? And I thought it was one of my sister's paintings, so I said, I don't know, must be one of my sister's. He said, that's really good, that behind the stove. Then I knew it was the one I had just painted for Edward. A little blue boy behind the fence. Oh, I said, that isn't much. No, that's real good. And then he just couldn't keep away the last few weeks. When I started to do a little painting, he was right there watching and liked it so much. I've always thought ever since, I wonder if he has come back. I wonder if he's watching over me. So I thought that was really sweet that he really came to love her painting and support her in it before he died. So he just came in after work one day and was really exhausted and acting kind of strange and she was trying to get him you know a snack and he couldn't seem to relax or get his boots off and he sat down in a chair and looked like he had fallen asleep but he just passed really quite quickly painlessly and a lot of people died in those days that way which um <laughs> i think i'd prefer but she was only 67 and she lived to be 101 so she lived another 34 years without him. Really crazy. When I had, so he dies and she starts, she keeps painting. And this is what she says about it. When I had quite a few paintings on hand, someone suggested that I send them down to the Thomas's drugstore in Hoosick Falls. So I tried that. I also exhibited a few at the Cambridge Fair with some canned fruits and raspberry jam. I won a prize for my fruit and jam, but not for my pictures. But then one day, this was in 1940, she was 80 years old that year. So her husband's died, she's just living along, being a grandma, taking care of her family, she's doing some painting. 
and she has these people have recommended to her that she put these paintings in this store so she's done that a mr lewis j calder of new york city an engineer and art collector passing through the town Husick falls saw and bought my paintings he wanted to know who had painted them and they told him it was an old woman that was living on the cambridge road by the name of anna mary moses so when i came home that night dorothy said if you had been here he could have sold you could have sold all your paintings there was a man here looking for them and he will be back in the morning to see them I told him how many you had. She thought I had about 10 or something like that. Well, I didn't sleep much that night. I tried to think where I had any paintings and what they were. I knew I didn't have many. They were mostly worsted, but I thought towards morning of a painting I had started on after house cleaning days when I found an old canvas and frame and I thought I had painted a picture of it of Virginia. It was quite large, and I thought if I could find frames in the morning, I could cut that right in two and make two pictures, which I did. And by so doing, I had the ten pictures for him when he came. <laughs> I did so it wouldn't get Dorothy in the doghouse, but he didn't discover the one I'd cut in two for about a year, and then he wanted to know what made me cut my best picture in two. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? And so that was the best one, and she cut it in two just so she could have ten, because that's what Dorothy told him. She didn't know anything about it. And, of course, you know, would love a little bit of extra money and would love to be able to sell her paintings. I mean, what a compliment. In fact, later on, someone asked her, you know, do you feel sad when you sell one of your paintings? And she says, oh, not at all. I, you know, hope other people enjoy them. I don't feel overly attached to them. And so when she got started, she really only had ten at the beginning to sell, but they became famous quite quickly. Um, Mr. Caldor went to New York and within just a few months was able to get an art exhibition of her work put up in New York City and people loved it immediately. When you look at her paintings, you'll see, you know, she's self-taught, but there's a lot of reasons why her paintings were really popular, continue to be popular, continue to sell for more and more. They're painted by someone who is painting from memory things that they really experienced and they reflect that era. You just feel like you're there when you look at her paintings and because they're so authentic from someone who lived it and can portray the details of what went on, they're just capturing scenes that they, there wasn't photography to capture and so they just have this authenticity about them that she's self-taught that she's just using the methods that she knows but proportionally they're correct someone was once asked her how she painted and she said I paint down and when they asked her what she meant by that she said that she paints the sky and then the landscape and the trees and then and then the scene, <laughs> like, I don't know, I don't know how she could possibly do that, but that's how she painted. From that point on, from the age of 80 to 101, and I think somewhere in her 90s, she slowed down and wasn't able to paint as much, but we have 1,500 of her paintings. She said some were from memory, some were historical, and some were just made up. So she would think up a scene like, um, she said several times she painted going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving dinner. And it would always recall, 
you know, she would make her think of a different type of scene that she would paint that again. She painted all seasons and a few different places. Some pieces of advice from Grandma Moses as we finish up. She says, I wonder sometimes if we are progressing. In my childhood days, life was different in many ways. We were slower, still had a good and happy life, I think. People enjoyed life more in their way. At least they seemed to be happier. They don't take time to be happy nowadays. Slowing down, focusing on what's most important, doing things that we love to do, serving others more, you know, just making time for what's most important and making our relationships a priority. She was really great at that. She really is just such a beautiful example of having embraced the principles that she was taught, uh, listening to her conscience, trying to be an upstanding woman who did her duty and fulfilled her responsibilities, someone who loved other people and developed her gifts and just my, you know, divine design, I guess. She was able to get these picture, these paintings noticed, you know, she had confidence, you know, what has she got to lose? She put the paintings up, you know, she didn't shy away from opportunities. When she was asked to give advice to young people today, this was in the 50s, she said, keep in good company, always improve your mind and body in every way, and never lose faith in what is ahead of you. If we have faith, we can overcome anything, she said. I believe in family worship and in the Bible. Um, she also said, I have found that it is best never to complain of disappointments. They are to be. So those are a few things about Grandma Moses. Such an inspiring woman. So cool to see her make her gifts a priority later in life. You know, there are seasons and every season can be just as full you know, she was taken to New York to one of her exhibitions. She thought she was just going to be kind of speaking to one or two people, and they put her in front of a large crowd, and she shared stories. She gave advice. She had influence and impact. She wrote her autobiography, which was super um, famous at the time. Lots of people purchased it and read it. She even was taken to the White House to meet the president, and one of her pieces were hung in the White House. So you just never know. And it may be, you know, you and I are not going to meet the president, and we're not going to travel the world, maybe. But you don't know where developing your gifts might take you. You don't know as you develop your character, and you just become better at those things that God has planted in your heart. You just don't know where it will lead and you don't know what positive impact you can be on others. So follow the example of Grandma Moses. Enjoy the season that you're in, but take time to truly love God and yourself, to love truth and humanity. Put that preparation in, live those foundational principles, and then let God use you however he would like to, to glorify him. Thanks so much for joining me. There's just a few more weeks uh, that the Mission Driven Life book will be available on audio. If you've not gotten your copy, go to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab that. 
and we will see you next time.